really understanding what your own worth is and being honest about that will help you to be a much better negotiator. First of all, you'll, you'll have your number. And if anyone tries to offer you less, you know that that's not what you want. There's a difference between getting into a job with a certain salary or negotiating a certain comp and then feeling as if they got the deal. That's a terrible place to be. You know, and so as long as you are getting what you think you deserve, don't worry about what anybody else is doing. That's that's it. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Bozema St. John, global CMO of Netflix. St. John visited Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students like me sit down to interview business leaders from around the world. I'm Jessica Lawson, an MBA student of the class of 2021. This year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Bozema from her home in California. She shared invaluable insights on living with urgency and death, knowing your worth, and showing up with intention. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Thank you, Jennifer. What an amazing intro. Wow, Bozma, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. Oh, thank you, Jessica. And um, I really appreciate that intro, Jennifer. <laughs> um, that was uh, that was actually um, quite motivating. I was like, oh, yes, brush my own shoulders off. Okay, yep, I'm out here. <laughs> I love that. I totally echo that sentiment. I mean, it's so exciting to have someone who has had such a consistently cool CV and who's coined so many viral hashtags grace the view from the top stage. So I'm just so excited to talk to you today. And, you know, social media takeovers are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what you do. You are a marketing and branding powerhouse. And as a former marketer myself, I am so excited to learn from you today. <laughs> so let's well, I'm, I'm, I'm really just trying to do, you know, some, some good work, some fun work every single day. You know, it's like, that is uh, my mission, which is that uh, I really love people. You mm. know, I love culture. I'm not ashamed of that. And I think that there are so many ways in which we can learn from each other, but also do it and have a good time. You know, it's like, what's the point of this life if we're not enjoying it? Uh, and I think that's actually the beauty of marketing is that we're able to bring out the joy in so much of what we interact with every day. And uh, I just try to find those moments and connect them together. I think that's really beautiful when you speak about what you do as a marketer so confidently. And I want to start with your sense of self because you are so confident. I know you've been told that countless times um, and you started to figure that out at a really early age because you were born in Connecticut, but your family moved to Ghana and then had to leave Ghana because of a coup. And eventually you landed in Colorado Springs around the age of 12, where you kind of stood out, right? You were tall and black. You were the only Ghanaian family in the area at the time. And you said of that experience, I, I love this. You said you couldn't be anything else. So you had to become everything that you were. What did that mean at that time? And, and what does that mean for you today and now? <laughs> well, I mean it really literally, you know, <laughs> that um, I really couldn't be anything else. I think there's a, a difference between, um, you know, when you are just slightly othered than when you are fully othered. You know, when there is, there's no mistaking that one of these things is not like the other, you know, it's like there, there's no mistaking that. It's not like I was a white girl who was a brunette and I wanted to be blonde to fit in with all the other girls. So guess what? Just went in, bought some hair dye and then tried blonde. 
by the way, I did try blonde at one point. It was a disaster, oh. uh, you know, but everything, everything was so different. You know, there was, there was no way to try and become what everyone else was. And that was not just, you know, physical. It was not just the outward, uh, you know, appearance. It was, it was everything. It was the way I thought about the world as a global citizen. You know, by the time I was 12, I'd lived in four countries already. I, I had already had classmates who spoke so many different languages, who had different religions. Mm-hmm. Um, I understood the intricacies and the differences and how people saw the world at 12. And my classmates didn't have that. They didn't, they didn't have the privilege of that. I actually do think of it as a privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, they had been in one place, uh, grown up with the same kids, uh, celebrated the same holidays. And so for me, there was a difference in philosophy and approach. You know, I had the kind of dad when, you know, kids would come over to, you know, have dinner on a Friday night, you know, just like have some pizza. He'd be sitting there, ask them if they understood the politics in uh, in Portugal. And you're like, dad, we just can we just talk about the Broncos? And he was like, Bronco who? For what? You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that's the kind of upbringing I had. And so the, I had no choice. Mm-hmm. There was no choice in trying to just simply fit in. And so therefore, yes, I, I took everything that I already had and just became more of that because there was no choice. And did you feel that you were successful in doing that as a child? Did you feel like you ultimately found your footing or was your childhood kind of this constant oh. back and forth? Oh, I was a total weirdo. I mean, I was completely strange. <laughs> and I mean, I can better articulate it these days, these days and celebrate it. Um, but yeah, I was, I was a strange kid, you know, I, I, I do distinctly and listen, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound like a lot of arrogance, but it is what it is. Okay. So you just gonna have to deal with it, which is that I do recall looking in the mirror and being like, but I'm so dope though. Like, I don't understand why these other kids, I don't understand why they don't understand why I'm so dope. Like, why, why do they get it? You know, because I did feel that sense of pride. You know, I think Sally Struthers and everybody else at the time who talked such shit about Africa, uh, they they owe me one, (laughs) you know, because I would go to school and kids would talk about, you know, the the picture of the kid on their fridge, you know, the one they were sending a, a cent to or two cents to every month. And I would roll my eyes because while that is partly the truth, right? You can't pretend as if there's not poverty in Africa or anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But their entire experience of what Africa was, was on their fridge, Mm -hmm. you know, with the kid with flies on their eyes and a distended belly. Whereas I understood the culture, you know, the fashion, the music, the food, the, uh, uh, gosh, the language, the beauty of a continent um, that had been stolen from, not just from its people, but its entire reputation, you know? And so walking into those situations and asking or being asked naive questions uh, meant that very early on, I I learned to fight with my tongue, (laughs) you know? I learned what it meant to stand up for for myself, you know, And, and learn how to stand up for a whole host of people who, who didn't ask me to, mm-hmm. you know? And so now these days when I'm in rooms and I'm one of one or one of few, uh, I'm also often asked if it makes me, you know, feel resentful um, to have to represent a whole bunch of people. You know, it's like, if you're the black person in the room, it's like, oh, let's see, what does the black person think about everything black? 
Right. You know, and no, I don't resent it. I've been doing it a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've been having to bring the presence uh, that deserves respect and deserves its value into rooms for a long time. So I'm used to it, and I can figure out in a, in a room how to change the mood uh, so that you understand the respect that the subject deserves. Right. Wow. That's, that's really powerful. And, you know, as you said, a lot of your professional career has been about helping others also feel seen. And you learned a lot about those skills through your childhood. And one example of that was during your time at Uber, where you were chief brand officer and led a project on how to help drivers uh, appear human or feel human, meaning the common experience in a ride share is that you get in the car, you say hello, and then you pull out your phone and entirely forget there's another human being in the front seat with the whole life and narrative and backstory. So at Uber, you were kind of tasked with changing that experience. I'm curious as a marketer, how you go about addressing a problem like that? How do you shine a spotlight on something and get people to care and be more empathetic about others? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, that was not the beginning of the the issue, right? I I found it because of the larger issue, which was just around safety. You know, when you think about safety in an Uber or any kind of rideshare, the thought at the time was, and the reports, of course, so many reports was that it wasn't safe. Right, it wasn't safe for women um, to be in a rideshare late at night. You know, it's like there there were um, a, a lot of stories being written about you know the the rides that would end up in terrible situations. And again, not to not to pretend as if those stories weren't true or that they didn't happen, uh, but the overwhelming majority of the time, you know, the ride was safe, being being given and performed by someone who has something even greater. To live for, also, you know, and so given that understanding about safety, um, the thought then, and, and my insight was that perhaps we just needed to humanize the other person, you know, who's in the car, because you're not going to get in and automatically think, well, you know, am I going to be all right? Like, am I going to get to where I'm going to? If you understood that the person who's driving you is trying to make some extra money to pay for college or trying to make some extra money to, to pay for their kids' <laughs> school, or for meals at home, or trying to uh, gather enough money to start a new business, or trying to buy a, a house or move out of the neighborhood they're in. Like we all have reasons why we do the work that we do, you know? And so if you could see that humanity, perhaps you'd have a different uh, perspective on not just the driver as a human being, but your experience within this 20 minute ride that you have. Uh, and so that became the mission. And uh, I counted on on some old friends to help me do that, including uh, Spike Lee, who is a former boss and uh, now a good friend. And uh, I've known him for 20 years. And so I called him and I was like, please, 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 please do me this favor. Like, please, <laughs> I know you're directing movies, but could you do like just some five, you know, short films for me at Uber? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm still paying him back for that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's really interesting because as you said, at the time, Uber itself was dealing with allegations and internally it was dealing with its own treatment of humans Hmm. and its organization and culture. I mean, Travis, the CEO, resigned a week after you started. So you got there and and you were looking at these projects and you saw an internal environment that you also wanted to change for 
black people, for people of color, for women in particular. But you said that you realized people couldn't really get out of their own way. Can you tell us more about that experience and what happened there? Yeah. I mean, you know what? Here's the thing is that, you know, oftentimes like you'll take a new job for a myriad of reasons. You know, um, for me, I took the job one because I believe Travis. I really did. You know, I thought he was sincere in his need or his desire to change the culture at Uber. You know, it becomes such a success in such a quick amount of time um, that it wasn't hard for me to understand how that happened. <laughs> you know, it's like I could I could see how the things went wrong, you know, and I believe that he really had desire to change it. Unfortunately, he didn't have the time to do it. And uh, that was a, that was a pretty bad week when I when I came and I was like, I'm sorry, what now? The, the, my boss is gone. What? OK, now what am I supposed to do? You know, um, and and also, you know, at the time, very much as now, you know, my feeling was that there was um, a moment in which Uber was like the golden child of everything tech. You know, everybody looked at that company and said, wow, now there's there's a startup that becomes the thing that we are all trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And it felt like overnight, then it became like the bane of existence. You know, it was just the worst thing ever. Delete Uber was everywhere. And it's like people didn't even want to mention the name. They would call their Uber and have them stop like two blocks down. So they could so nobody knew that they were getting an Uber. You know, it became yeah. like this pariah. Um, but what was most fascinating to me was the fact that it was being sort of beaten down about its treatment of women and people of color, especially inside and at the executive ranks. Mm -hmm. And I sat at my desk and I was like, I'm sorry, like, have we forgotten that every company in corporate America is exactly like this? Like how all of a sudden we just start beating up Uber. And so I felt that like, well, listen, if, if Uber is going to be the poster child, mm -hmm for having to fix all of the ills, you know, around representation and its treatment of, of women and uh, people of color inside of the company, uh, then yeah, I'm gonna sign up for that. Because if Uber can change, then so can everybody else. There's no excuse for anybody else to continue behaving the way they're behaving. Right. Now, unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of businesses that uh, say that they want to do something, but then don't, don't actually enact any real change inside, you know, and Uber was in a place in which it needed to rectify its business. You know, as I said, the lead Uber was a catastrophe, you know, and so a new CEO was brought in and of course um, he needed to fix the business. And I felt that the things that we needed to do to better enable you know, the connection to consumers um, may not have been at the forefront, you know, and uh, again, quite honestly, as we already know, I think I'm the best marketer around and I want to be in a place that uh, really valued my work. And so I decided that perhaps that was not the right place for me at that time. Mm. And I recall in that decision to leave in another interview, you said, you don't need to be the savior. You can save yourself too. Yeah. Can you tell us about the, the decision to save yourself? Because I know, you know, as someone who's a member of underrepresented groups, I often struggle with the balance of, you know, wanting to be the man in the arena and fighting the good fight and also preserving my sanity and mental health and well-being. So can you, can you tell us about saving yourself there? Yeah. The operative word is yourself. Mm -hmm. in there. You know, this is not about anybody else's experience. Like, for instance, I'm not the one who's going to say, never go work at Uber. You should. You know, perhaps you'll have a different experience than I did. I, I don't think it's a bad place to be. It just wasn't the right place for me. 
And I think that's the point that we have to realize, which is that all of us have different bandwidths. You know, at the time, it wasn't right for me. It meant that like what I wanted to do in marketing, what I wanted to create wasn't going to happen there. And I just needed to realize that, you know, I think some of us, like you said, sometimes hang in, you know, waiting. We're like, oh, well, six months from now, it's going to be better. You know, all of a sudden I'm going to be valued. Uh, said who? <laughs> you know, it's like, you just need to see the flags, yeah. you know, and recognize them for what they are. And it is painful. It's not easy. You know, I won't pretend like it is. Yeah. You know, who, who doesn't want to feel valued, especially when you think you're the best at what you do? Right. You know, it's like a, you take an ego hit, you know, yeah. and I certainly did. Um, but I certainly wasn't willing to sacrifice any more time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think perhaps that's that's the the lesson that I've learned Um you know, in the, in the past few years, you know, after a, quite a, a significant personal tragedy, I just realized I didn't want to waste any more time, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, six months seems like a lifetime and I don't want to waste any of it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's beautiful. And obviously leaving Uber was the right decision for yourself. And you ended up going to Endeavor where you were CMO of the pop culture machines that are WME and IMG and Miss Universe, et cetera. Um, And from one career move to the next, it seems like you can't miss, and that's undoubtedly due to your talent and reputation, but I also have to think you're a pretty good negotiator. That's something that's uh, something that I struggle with and I think many women struggle with as well. What negotiating advice do you have for someone like myself who's entering the job market in the next few weeks and really wants to, you know, up the ante significantly with this next move? <laughs> Ooh, I know. That's the, that's like the magic question, you know, <laughs> money, money, money. Um, well, I'll tell you a couple of things, which is, you know, again, it's, it's not the same for everyone. Right. And that's probably the biggest lesson to be learned in that. Um, which is I realize that it's easy to compare ourselves to other people and say, well, I should make that because that person does. Mm-hmm. Eh, maybe that's not so true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I'm I'm always more interested at your personal top of market mm-hmm. than what is the top of market anywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And that also requires a lot of self-reflection and self-awareness. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, what are you actually worth? Mm-hmm. You know, what is your value in this space? Um, what are the things that are unique to you And what are the things that you need to learn? You know, I think there's a mistake we make when we think that we have all the tools ready for whatever job or whatever space uh, and attribute those things to what then we should, how we should be compensated. You know, I think there's a real um, lack of sometimes clarity in Mm -hmm. what we are actually bringing. And it happens on both ways, right? Where it's like, you think you're not worth enough (laughs) and where you think you're worth too much. And both of those things can get in your way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's really about understanding what I'm going to bring to the job. You know, Um, yes, of course, you have to understand the, uh, you know, what the what the field is and what is being offered, you know, across. So you have a good understanding of the uh, sort of the boundaries, right, or the pool in which you're entering, Mm -hmm. Uh, but really understanding what your own worth is. And being honest about that will help you to be a much better negotiator because what will happen is that, first of all, you'll, you'll have your number, you'll have your, the place where you want to be. Right. And if anyone tries to offer you less, you know, that that's not what you want, Mm -hmm. you know? And for me, it's like, you know, there's a difference between getting into a job with a certain salary or negotiating a certain comp, um, and then feeling as if they, they got the deal. Right. That's terrible. That's a terrible place to be. 
Right. You know, and so as long as you are getting what you think you deserve, don't worry about what anybody else is doing. That's that's it. I will certainly keep that in mind during these conversations. <laughs> so knowing your worth can lead to a lot of success. Um, and now your your next leg is global CMO of Netflix. And that's super exciting. I want to talk about the global part of your title for a second, because Netflix operates in over 190 countries, which is a massive operation. Um, and as a former marketer, I know it can be daunting for brands to kind of market across cultures because you have to find this balance between reaching the masses and making sure individuals and specific communities feel authentically heard and spoken to. And the reaction there sometimes from a lot of companies can be just to hold back from leading or even participating in certain conversations. Hmm. As a CMO, how do you push more risk averse organizations to speak up and advocate? Hmm. It's a very um, layered question. <laughs> There's a lot. In there. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a <laughs> question. Um, well, maybe I'll address the global component first, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm very sensitive, obviously, to the globe, because as I, you know, start out talking about, um, you know, I, I find myself to be a global citizen, you know, and I, I think that there's a lot of worthiness in other places on the planet outside of the West, <laughs> you know, that um, the world does not, its access is not set in the US or in Europe, you know, that there are lots of other places where there are important conversations, important cultures, uh, and that not everyone speaks the same language, literally and figuratively, right? Um, and so I'm very sensitive to that, but it also means that I understand the matrix you know, because there are ways in which we need to speak to people or engage them that are borderless. Yeah. You know, I, I really, um, even today, it's like, uh, well, actually, no, I'll give you an example from, was it last week or maybe the week before um, we announced the a film called Zero, uh, mm. which is about the Black Italian experience. Um, and I'm so excited about it because it's like one of the best performing tweets uh, that we posted on Strong Black Lead. Now, you could look at Strong Black Lead and say, well, that's, you know, about the American Black experience. But it's not. This is about the Black experience, where, wherever you are, right? And I think that just goes to prove the fact that there's a unifying experience around the globe on being Black. And sometimes, even when you're not uh, familiar with that Black experience, you still want to cheer it on, you still want to know about it. And so that community that loves everything Black is absolutely going to now watch that film, right? Um, I see the same thing for, for in other spaces, you know, where we talk about Stranger Things, you know, is around a title. And yes, there's a certain demographic of people who love it, but guess what? They cross all kinds of borders and they cross all kinds of demos. And so you've got to speak to that entire audience. Mm -hmm. And then if you have, um, you know, content that is in Finland, it probably needs to be in Finnish, you know, at some capacity, right? Because there are a lot of English speakers there. Mm -hmm. uh, but can we figure out a way to make sure that some of the content that is coming out of Finland is actually Finnish, you know, and, and we'll speak to that audience in particular. I don't think it's a lot of hard work. I just think it's a lot of a lot of intention, mm -hmm. you know, which is that we've got to make sure that you not only have the right people who are going to be able to understand culture, understand people, but who have a healthy curiosity for it. Mm -hmm. You know, healthy curiosity. 
because that is what we all do. You know, take your own experience, right? With your own group of friends. It's like, you would be the asshole friend if you're sitting here always concentrating on yourself. Right. You know, you walk into a situation and you know that it was your girlfriend's birthday three weeks ago. Okay. You wish her happy birthday then, but you walk in, let's just pretend it's COVID time. You got your mask on. Okay. <laughs> um, and you're like, you know, how was the birthday? You know, we still celebrating or what we doing? You know, that's something different than when you walk in and you're just talking about the new shoes you have on. Yeah. You know, it's it's that kind of intention setting. Now, while that sounds like a very silly example, it happens in all of our lives. We know people like that. Definitely. You know, the people in your life who are so self-centered yeah. and all they want to do is talk about it. You know that if they call you, they're not calling to check up on you. It's like a ruse. You know, I hate those type of phone calls. You know, the ones that they call you and you know, they just call and talk about themselves. I'm like, why'd you even call me? You should have just called your own damn self. Yeah. You know, that's the way I see brands. It's like when, when we engage in the world and you're only talking about yourself, blah, 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 always out. That is, there's nobody's friend. Nobody wants to be involved in that. But brands who have a healthy dose of curiosity and healthy intention to get to know the people, to understand culture, to speak to them in their language, literally and figuratively, as I said, uh, are the ones who win. And that's the way I approach marketing everywhere and at Netflix too. Mm -hmm. And I see intention in your approach to your personal brand as well. I mean, you have an extraordinarily influential personal brand. And, and one piece of that is your fantastic style and strong physical presence. And you know, there's real intent there. there. There's not just like surface level things because hair and nails and clothing, all these things can be important psychological expressions, especially oh, for God. those who felt othered. I'd mm -hmm. love for you to tell us a little more about the choices you've made about how you present yourself in the workplace and beyond. Yes. Oh my goodness. It so pisses me off when people are like, oh, but that's so superficial. For who? <laughs> Who's it superficial for? I'm like, do you see that the Crown Act just got passed and not everywhere, by the way, so I can wear my hair and its natural textures at work and not be afraid of being fired for it? Right. Like, for who? who is this superficial for? Right. Yes, for those who've always had it. That's who. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I do make the choice. I'm very intentional in showing up very Black, very femme all the time because that's who I am. And my hope is that in doing so, it actually allows other people to show up in the way they are. I'm not saying everybody needs to show up in multicolored leopard print. I'm not saying that, you know, or need to have their nails done or face beat every time. But it's like, however you feel like showing up, I hope you're able to do that because there's so much freedom in it. You know, when you, when you haven't had that kind of freedom, it is, it is so difficult to be able to actually do the good work. I remember the days when I had to prescribe to a certain way of looking. You know what I mean? Some, sometimes that's, that's still on me, you know? There are folks who think I shouldn't show up the way I show up now. You know, there are folks who, you know, were, were in my DMs and messages and comments in August when I got, you know, when I was announced to this job, who said, oh, well, don't you think that the global CMO should, I'm sorry, should do what? Come again? One more time? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. The global CMO of Netflix looks like this and twerks when she wants to, wears a bathing suit when she wants to, reads a ton of books when she wants to, listens to RIP DMX when she wants to. You know, like that for me is the freedom. 
to be able to be as I am so that all of my energy can be put into my brilliance. That's what I want. That's freedom. And so for me, it is extraordinarily important that even though sometimes it does take a little bit of energy to actually show up (laughs) the way I actually am, that in the long run, it's so much better. You know, those days when I had to be careful about my tone, you know, because sometimes it would be off-putting to my colleagues or would scare people. You know, my passion would come off sounding like anger. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, maybe your idea was just really stupid and I needed to let you know. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like sometimes that's, that's the energy I brought. Mm-hmm. And I was right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so for me, I'm like, you know, the, the ability to be able to show up exactly as I am is such a privilege. And so for those who are uncomfortable with that privilege, well, listen, I'm sorry, but now it's time for for you to step aside because I'm going to be who I am. And that's what I hope we all are. Just be exactly who we are. I love that. And, you know, on the topic of authenticity and bringing your full self and being who you are, your next feat is publishing a book, which is, you know, taking that a, a step further. Mm-hmm. It's a story of photos of your late husband, Peter, who sadly passed away from cancer in 2013. The book is coming out next year. It's called The Urgent Life, A Story of Love, of Love, Grief, and Survival. Mm-hmm. And in your announcement, you said it was the first time you're really facing the challenge of putting everything you're holding onto the page. Um, I want to ask today, and please share as much as you feel comfortable, was it a scary decision to open up that very vulnerable part of yourself? And, you know, what, if anything, do you hope to gain by doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not scary mm. uh, to open up because it's it's the right time. Mm. You know, um, I've been asked to write a book for a long time. You know, uh, it probably first started when um, Peter was sick and I, you know, I documented everything on social media the way I do now, you know, and and sometimes I would write long prose, you know, about whatever happened that day. I often posted photos followed by some, you know, description of what was happening. Uh, And I remember that um, a a few months into that, somebody, you know, suggested that I write a book of, of the experiences. Um, but as you can imagine, I was like, oh, no, I'm so much more, f- I know I look like I'm writing something, but it's really just like journaling to me. You know, I'm, I'm writing down what I'm feeling and you, you happen to read it because it's public. Right. Um, but that is not my focus right now. And even after he passed away and, uh, you know, tried to figure out how to rebuild my life and mother my child and do all of the things, um, it felt like, okay, well, maybe there's space you know, uh, to write. And there wasn't, there hasn't been, you know, it never felt right. Um, and I think that is also part of the lesson for us, right? Which is that everything in its own time, you know, it's like your time is your time, not anybody else's time. I'm not on anybody's timetable, but my own, you know? And so when I felt that I was ready to write it is, is when I started accepting the phone calls, you know, and really started to have a, a real conversation about it. And I also find that when I'm doing things in my own time, it seems to flow better, you know, because you're not forcing it. Mm-hmm. Like, I just always feel like if anything feels like it's forced, it's probably not its time. Right. You know, it, it's, it's not the way of nature. 
You know, that it's like when, when fruit is not ripe, it's so much harder to peel the skin back. You know, it's like, we just need to take our lessons from nature and things all around us. When it's not your time, it's not your time. Don't force it. You know, and so for me, this very moment in time is it. I'm ready, you know, to share about my experiences and the questions that I get most of the time or, you know, how is it that I've been able to face such grief uh, at various points in my life and still thrive? You know, it's like, how, how do I put one step in front of the other? How is it that I'm able to still work? How am I able to seem like I have joy in my life? And at the very center of it is what I said, you know, a few minutes ago about urgency. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's why the book is titled, titled as it is, because in Peter's death, I found the urgency in my own life, you know, which meant that I knew that life is not about the speed at which you live it. So urgency isn't about fast moving. It's not about, you know, can I get this done all today? No, it's about the depth of your life. You know, it's about the experiences that you are having that actually matter. You know, that there's not one wasted moment, not one wasted day. It's why I think six months matters. It's why I'm not waiting until retirement to do the things that I want to do. I'm going to do them today. You know, it is why, like, when, you know, somebody says, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll get to that at some other point. No, 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 no. We're going to do it right now. And it, it also is probably the reason why I've moved around so much in my career. I'm just, I'm totally impatient right. with mediocrity. I'm looking for the greatest part of my life today. You know, I'm not going to wait for it tomorrow. And it's a high bar. It really is. You know, it will challenge you. You know, when you start doing it, it will feel like the impossible. But I promise you, if you keep doing it, it will become your standard. And then nothing else will ever feel the same. You won't accept anything less because your standard would have been so raised that everything else feels like it's such a loss. Right. You know, and so for me, I hope that what people take away from my book is, is not that you need to live life fast, but that you need to live it really well and very deeply. I'm so grateful that you would share those lessons with us. I mean, I love impatient for mediocrity. I, I think I'm going to tuck that one away. That, that's a great one to have. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'm going to flip it over to my classmates who are going to ask, uh, two questions and then we'll, we'll come back to wrap. So okay. first I believe we have Lola. Thank you so much for this talk. It was already amazing. Um, so I'm Lola. I'm a student here at both MBA and, uh, environment and resource, uh, uh student. And so my question for you is how do you see the, war, uh, the role of uh, the entertainment industry in building new social norms? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Lola. Um, gosh. You know, so I'll take it back to Sally Struthers because I really, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm looking for Sally Struthers. Like when I see her walking around sometime in the future, I have a lot of questions for her because she was the face, right, of the campaign um, around... African children starving and, you know, needing the cents on the dollar every day, right? Um, that is one of the biggest examples that I can give for how content changes perception, right? Um, and I believe very firmly that we can reverse a lot of those. You know, one of the big insights that um, 
we did it at Netflix at the end of last year, which just sort of gathered all the, you know, all the data and insights that we could around uh, consuming behavior, right? And one of my favorite parts was the fact that uh, because of the pandemic, um, people consumed content from other places uh, at a almost 200% increase. You know, meaning that if you were in Brazil, you were watching content from France. Or if you're in the US, you're watching content from Turkey. Or if you were in Nigeria, you were watching content from Colombia. You know, it was like, it was all over the place. <laughs> and Korean dramas just woof, you know, just everybody's watching K-drama, you know? Um, and I think it's such a beautiful thing, you know, to be able to expand your world, your understanding, your knowledge of places based on content. You know, what a powerful tool. And so I, I do believe very firmly that if we are to do that more, you know, if we're able to share more, uh, let people see what others, are, how pe people are living, you know, the beauty of culture, as we said, of, of like the fact that you can watch a food show and not actually taste the food, but imagine that it's good based on what the person is saying and then want to try it, I think is probably the biggest lesson there is. You know, it's like, I mean, all of the cooking shows that we have on Netflix, I'm constantly amazed by the numbers because I'm like, these people, they can't even smell the food, you know, but they're just watching it, you know, it's like, and, and, and by the way, most people aren't even trying to cook it. They're just watching. They're just watching somebody else cook and eat. You know, I think that is incredible. And if we're able to um, fold in experiences from other cultures, I think it expands our, our, our insight you know, in the way that we see the world. And so absolutely, I think that um, entertainment has a has a very, very, very big role in changing societal norms. And that that crosses so many things, you know, and that's not just even about, um, you know, perception of a country, that's all of our all of our challenges that we face, you know, whether they are gendered, or, you know, LGBTQAI, or they are, gosh, so we have so many issues, Lord help us, you know, <laughs> but I do think that if we are able to use entertainment as a way to normalize experiences across the board, then we have a, a much better shot at being just better human beings. Thank you, Lola. Thank you. Um, next we have Ori. Hi, thank you so much for being here. I am a second year MBA student and I think Netflix's activations for show launches have been incredible. Um, I myself waited in line for four hours to attend the Gilmore Girls pop-up in LA. Oh! And, <laughs> I know. So I was thinking, I was, wanted to ask you, how do you think about experiential marketing formats for life after coronavirus? Oh, yes. Oh, Ori, I cannot wait for that. Oh, God, I can't wait, you know, because the thing is that you need various touch points, you know, to make marketing come to life or, or to connect people with a brand, right? And it doesn't matter what brand that is. It's not even just Netflix, it's any brand. You know, that experiential marketing, event marketing is one of the cornerstones of doing great marketing, right? It's like, you've got to be able to, to not just communicate with people verbally or visually, um, but also use all their other senses, you know, and, and it's a great way to get people deep into an experience. And so a lot of times, of course, experiential event marketing is not about reach and frequency, 
you know, because you really can't get to that many people. You know, it's like you could put up a billboard and get more people in 20 minutes than you could out of creating an event for the Gilmore Girls, you know, and getting people in cycled in and out of, of those experiences. But it's so important, right? Because what I'd love to get our evangelists, you know, people like you who are going to go into that event, experience it, have a good ass time, and then tell everybody else in the world, like how great it was. And even if they can't attend it, your testimony alone is going to convince them that this is a good thing. And that's what you want, right? At the end of the day, it's like the word of mouth, uh, you know, testimony is the best marketing that there is. And so if I can do that by giving you a great experience close to the brand, then I've won. It is much better than any billboard or static image that I could ever provide. So I think it's it's critical to what we do. And I, I can't wait to get back to it. Thank you. Thanks, Ori. Thank you, Rose. I get so much pride hearing you talk about marketing. There's so much power and responsibility in it. I love it. Yes. Um, I have one last question for you, which we're asking all of our speakers this year, which is what principles do you rely on during your toughest moments as a leader? Mm, oh gosh, that's such a hard one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, principles. Oh gosh, there's so much. There's so much that I, I think about. Um, but maybe the, you know, the one that I the one that I probably rely on most is integrity. Mm. You know, the integrity of of intention. You know, um, because the thing is that you know, you can't be all things to all people, even as a leader. Mm. I think it's one of the biggest lessons perhaps that we've learned in, in the last year, right? Because I, was, I would challenge that prior to this year, um, whether it was racially motivated or um, you know, gendered, or as we said, sexual orientation, like regardless of the, of the issue, the societal problem, we never want to say anything, right? For fear that you said something wrong. Cancel culture is so thick and deep that we would just not want to touch it, right? The challenge is that by not having an opinion at all meant that you actually were alienating yourself from the consumer, from your audience, from your members, from anyone who, who is going to interact with your brand. And what I saw, at least beginning, you know, um, I think especially at George Floyd's murder, right, um, at the height of BLM protests, um, was a quick change from companies who had never said anything at all. I mean, I, I knew that, you know, culture had changed when I saw a message from Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I was like, oh, so now they care about Black Lives Matter too? Oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, it just seemed like everybody was now having a more honest conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and one of, the, one of the reasons why um, and by the way, I, I said this publicly, I, hell, I said it on MSNBC, I said it on CNN, I said it every, every platform <laughs> that I, I was asked to be on, I was like, I need leaders to show up as a human beings that they are. You know, you're not brick and mortar. It's like, if you're feeling something, I want you to say it, you know, and even if you say it wrong, it is better than not saying anything at all. You know, the same way that I would have like an, an outpouring of appreciation for a friend who's not going through the same thing that I'm going through, but recognizes it and maybe doesn't say the exact right thing, but I know their intention. That's the way that we as leaders need to interact with the consumers at large, our audience at large. And so for me, it's about integrity and the integrity of intention. You know, that I may not know everybody's experience. I may not have lived everyone's experience, but if I have integrity, 
and I am doing it intentionally, then I am probably going in the right direction. And so I have to just stick with that and make decisions based on that. Wow. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you for being here. I know I'm walking away thinking about how I can live more intentionally and, and urgently. And thank you as always for being so authentic and inspiring and energizing. It's been a great conversation. Thank, thank you, you Jessica. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by me, Jessica Lawson, of the MBA class of 2021. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and Kelsey Doyle produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, www.gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.